Hey everyone, welcome to the Golf Shot Podcast. This is a new podcast that I'm going to try out. Um, you know, basically, I'm a huge golf nut, and I know the golf market is kind of just inundated with podcasts and content, and I'm definitely somebody who consumes a lot of that content myself. I love the discourse. I love listening to lots of different podcasts, reading a lot of articles. Um, but really, what I was thinking about trying to accomplish here was just really getting my own opinions out there and hopefully adding um, a slightly new perspective to the discourse. And I'm somebody who considers myself to be pretty knowledgeable, but I wouldn't say that I'm an expert as other people are in various areas. So like, you know, there's a lot of very influential golf uh, media out there from the fried egg to no laying up and to a lot of the, the golf betting podcasts that I listen to. And, you know, a lot of those guys have really strong expertises in those areas. So like, I'm not your golf betting expert. I am somebody who knows a ton about professional golf, about the PGA tour. I do bet on golf um, pretty unsuccessfully, but I'm familiar, you know, with a lot of the players and a lot of the kind of where the betters are coming from when they're looking at markets and things like that. But and then on the other side, when it comes to things like the fried egg, um, I'm somebody who's really interested in golf course architecture. Uh, I think I know a decent amount about golf course architecture, but do I know the amount that they do? No, not at all. But I was just thinking that I just wanted to start something. I just felt like I was bottling up so many thoughts about golf. And I was just in constant discourse with myself and with all this other golf media that's out there that I just really kind of wanted to get my voice out there to see if it was worth anything. Uh, probably not. Probably won't be able to keep this going just because <laughs> I'll just lose steam and I have a lot of other stuff to do. I have a, a job and everything else in life to deal with. But um, I really do want to try to commit to this and make it a weekly thing and kind of see where it goes from there. Um, you know, my favorite podcast is probably the shotgun start which i've listened to religiously since it began and you know i think you know they just celebrated five years on that show and it was right after the Ryder cup in paris and so i thought okay here's a time the Ryder cup one of the signature events in golf which i know everybody in golf has tons of kind of things they want to talk about and leave so many questions and so much, you know, kind of like media discussion and, and fan discussion. So I thought maybe this would be a good time. Definitely an event. The 2023 Ryder Cup is definitely an event I have a lot of thoughts on, and maybe I can get to that if I have time. Um, but I thought it would be a great, great chance to get something out there and hopefully create a voice that's original enough and different from, you know, I think a lot of us are very familiar with a lot of the golf media that's out there. And I was hopeful that I could present something just slightly different um, and just slightly unique. Um, I got to give a shout out also to Andy Lack's podcast, Inside Golf. Um, I kind of started listening to him as I got a little bit more interested in the golf betting world. And I just really appreciate the research that Andy puts in and how Andy kind of comes at it a similar perspective as I do, where he's somebody who's interested in the PGA Tour. He's interested in golf course architecture. He is a 
so much more knowledgeable about uh, golf betting than I am. And so I wouldn't, I don't think I would be as successful or, or could possibly be as successful as he is. Um, and I just also appreciate some of the other discourse that he, that he brings to his podcast and just kind of the, the pop culture, um, the different sports. Um, I'm definitely, I'm somebody who's interested in all types of sports. So, okay. That's, uh, that's my attempt at this introduction. This is all kind of a workshop. I don't know if this is any good, but I'm going to have to work on my talking and breathing and stopping and all that stuff. Um, and listen to all my, my podcast heroes to get some, some, insights from them and listen a little bit more closely on how they kind of run through these things but i'm going to kind of stop it there and try to regroup to kind of get into the golf stuff that i wanted to kind of talk about okay so the 2023 Ryder cup just finished on sunday i assume if you're listening to this um first of all thank you but i also have to assume that this is about the 30th golf podcast you would be listening to um, and maybe you just, just can't get enough. Maybe you just want to just soak in all the content uh, as a European victor, as I would want to do with, with any of my sports teams where you just want to just absorb all the media attention about it. Um, or you're just, you know, you're just a golf nut and you just want to hear everything that you can and you're just looking for something new. And if that's the case, uh, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you listening to this. This is my first ever attempt at this and this is the first ever the golf shop podcast um but i just you know i wanted to share some thoughts on the 2023 Ryder cup um because i think there's just a lot of stuff to to talk about so as you probably know the european team defeated the u.s team a 16 and a half to an 11 and a half in what turned out to be you know as an american and as american fan in the Ryder cup um one that was pretty deflating from the get-go, but got compelling and ultimately was very compelling. And there was a moment there on the Sunday singles where you did feel like the U.S. had a very narrow window where they could possibly pull out this miracle. And, you know, but I think as is the case with any Ryder Cup, it's always a kind of all or nothing proposition. Obviously, there's a winner and a loser. And that kind of winner loser mentality kind of takes over the entire um, discussion around the event for the next two years. And so as what is prone to happen, Luke Donald is the winning captain and obviously gets full credit for the win. And Zach Johnson as the losing captain gets lots of blame for the loss. And to be honest with you, I think this is a situation where the winning captain clearly showed qualities that of why the team won. And Zach Johnson as the captain for the U.S. team definitely showed a lot of reasons why the U.S. lost. And, you know, I think, you know, I think what is a little tough is Zach Johnson. You hear Zach Johnson in these interviews and I heard him on golf channel and I was listening, you know, Steve Sands was interviewing him on the first tee. He is like a terrible public speaker. It's like honestly boggling that he's been a professional golfer for so long and had to talk so often that he would be so like 
bumbling and just like fumbling over his words and not really having these even like a prepared statement he had like little prepared phrases but he would always like mash it up and like not really make a coherent sentence and luke donald obviously he's always been very eloquent uh kind of that quiet you know kind of just english way that luke donald speaks that quiet confidence that roy mcroy uh pointed out that he had and as kind of you would expect luke donald just seemed super prepared and he was you know clearly had a plan he incredibly um i think incredibly was an incredibly bold move for him to send foursomes out as the first um for the first matches on friday switching up basically 30 years of precedent and you know i'm not the first one to mention this but switching up a precedent that last time foursomes had started on friday was when europe had lost in 1993 and so, obviously, if that had gone wrong, he would have faced tremendous backlash for that decision, and it took a lot of guts, and so I give him a lot of credit for that. And obviously, he just showed why the Europeans seem to be better at this. And I think it's really tough to talk about the Ryder Cup these days because we, as I was, as I was saying with like the, the all-or-nothing proposition, it's like we, we are super complimentary of the winners and super critical of the losers and we think it's like a system thing that makes the winning team win and a system thing that brings the losing team down and makes them lose but to be honest the the underlying thing these last 10 years has been that the home team has really dominated this event and the Ryder Cup does seem to have a little bit of a home um, problem, home competitive problem. And I think, you know, right now we're like, oh, well, you know, Beth Page is going to be competitive because we're just coming off this European victory. And we're like, well, look at the European team. It's going to be, it's probably going to look a lot similar. This is going to be a similar team. How can you not like them in two years at Beth Page? But that's exactly how we felt coming out of whistling straights when the U.S. just boat raced the European team to like a historic victory and we thought well how can you not like that u.s team going into europe but you know i think my takeaway right now is like you cannot back the road team until it happens you should just like if you're a better you have to bet on the home team like you just have to expect the home team to win that's the way this event has been going and as much as we i think the u.s being being from the U.S., being somebody who's consuming a lot of, like, U.S. golf media, I think we're kind of always searching for the U.S. answers. And so we're like, okay, well, this will be the time they make it close. And, or this is the time they finally get over the edge because all the baggage from the, the kind of that Tiger Phil era, mid-2000s, when they when they were just getting crushed, you know, all that's over with. The Furyk and the and the, all those guys are gone. And we have a new contingent who's used to winning, the Justin Thomases, the Jordan Spees, the Brooks Kepkas, and, and the people who have been on these winning teams. Um, but, you know, it's just not that easy. It's just not that easy, and it just hasn't really um, played out. We just, I guess, it has played out. They have been more successful, but they haven't gotten, gotten through kind of the final boss, which is clearly winning in Europe. And... Um, I think I have some thoughts on why Europe seems to be so successful 
And I think why, if you had to give anybody an edge to win an away game, you do kind of have to give it to Europe. So at its core, as I just said, you know, I think right now, if you're betting on the Ryder Cup, you have to assume the home team is going to win. That is what history has shown us, and history has really shown us that it hasn't really been that close in these last 10 years. Since Medina, when the European team came back from the historic deficit, we've had a series of pretty big victories, right? So there was Hazeltine, where the U.S. won. That was actually fairly close, but the U.S. kind of really pulled away in Sunday singles. There was obviously Paris, which was a huge blowout win for the European teams after a strong start by the U.S., there was then um, Whistling Straits, where, as we know, the U.S. just absolutely dominated. And then here in Mark, at Marco Simone, where the European team really um, asserted themselves early and held on for uh, what ended up being a pretty substantial 16.5, 11.5 victory. Um, so the home team is the bet in the Ryder Cup. The home team clearly has the advantage in the Ryder Cup, and I think there's a little bit been a little bit of talk out there about the setup and whether the away team should start setting up the be able to set up the golf course. I think it's kind of an interesting concept. I'm not sure. I haven't really heard a lot of the for and against that idea. Um, I think Marco Simona though was kind of a pretty uh, fair setup, and I don't think you would really point. To that golf course as really obviously favoring uh like the europeans over the americans i mean i think part of the issue with that binary right now is that the european players and the american players are just so similar i mean obviously all the top european players play on the pga tour and i'd say rory rom and hovland are pretty are almost like the epitome of like the pga tour player at least like not to, and I don't mean that as an insult. I think they're like the best versions of all those things. I mean, I think Victor Hoven has basically described himself as a track man golfer. <laughs> I don't think Roy would necessarily describe himself that way, but he, he's a really good PGA tour player. And so is John Rahm. So is Tommy Fleetwood. Um, so, you know, that's an interesting discussion, but really what I'm trying to say here is that the European team, I think, has the better chance of winning on the road. I don't know if that will be at Beth Page just because I am already, I was talking, you know, I live in New York City. I was talking to a coworker today about the Ryder Cup and Beth Page. And that may be um, just a, I mean, if the Hatgate thing exploded in Italy, uh, let's just say that Beth Page could just be an, like a real electric atmosphere to use a generous term, but it could be like really, uh, get really nasty. And I think a lot of golf fans know what happened with Sergio Garcia at the 2002 US Open when it was played there. And he was struggling with his grip and he was getting hollered at and he like flipped a fan off. Uh, New York fans, uh, can famously be pretty, uh, can be pretty mean. And in a golf environment, that's not usually what golfers are used to. And to be honest, I think. Europeans have are like super sensitive when it comes to what the U.S. fans seem to throw at them, and this has been a long, long-standing issue. Um, I know at least going back to Brook Brookline uh, when the Ryder Cup was at the Country Club, 
uh, in Brookline and, you know, all the different kind of, I think the kind of like a little bit of, a lot of European anger over comments made, uh, especially Colin Montgomery and Jose Maria Lothalbo. And there's some other guys who got really upset about fan behavior. I think Beth Page may just blow that out of the water based on <laughs> the way we saw things kind of going at Whistling Straits. And then what we saw in Europe, which I thought was um, definitely more boisterous than I had remembered European Ryder Cups being. And definitely uh, a situation where U.S. players were clearly getting peeved at things. And then obviously the hat, the Patrick Cantley hatgate thing, which absolutely just exploded into a just like was beyond just like fan behavior and became like a, just a huge sports story. Um, but anyhow, well, what I'm trying to say, and I keep sidetracking myself, is that the European team, I do think, has a better chance at winning an away game just because I think the Europeans have a couple advantages that the U.S. team needs to find a way to kind of like foster the same level of expertise and really commitment that the Europeans have shown. So I'd say for the most part, what do you hear consistently from European players that you do not hear from American players is one big difference with the Ryder Cup. And that is simply that European players see the being on Ryder Cup teams as a goal in being a professional golfer. And you really do not hear that very often with American players. American players dream about winning majors, winning PGA Tour events. That is usually always what you, where you hear the goals of American players being. European players obviously dream of winning major championships. Golf is an individual sport, and there's a lot of individual goals revolved around the game of golf we all obviously know that but much more often you will hear european players say that they have a goal to be on Ryder cup teams to make the Ryder cup team and i think it really you know maybe it's something i'm reading uh too much into but i really just think it's the one of the fundamental differences and i think it's one of the reasons why we can't seem to really uh, quantify why European players just seem to play better in the Ryder Cup and why they seem to get so much out of these guys. You may say, well, like, isn't that just like ramping up the pressure? But, you know, consistently, I think what we've seen over, you know, the last basically 40 years since Europe, you know, since the European continent be became a part of the event is that the European players just rise to the occasion. And even this week, like players like um, Justin Rose, which I who I really thought may have a bad week, and I didn't think was coming in with much form. I mean, he really played really well. I mean, he putted unbelievable, and I mean, it's I don't want to get too like you know like crazy out there like spiritual about it, but I mean, the European players are like holding these chips and like I mean these crazy chip ins, and it's like how is this happening? And I'm not saying that. You know, you'll chip the ball in if you wanted more, but there's definitely just this element, this like passionate, you know, aura that Europeans bring to the event that just brings out the best of them. Um, I think, you know, to be a little cynical about it, I think there's also been a history of a lot of European players who have been 
bit of chokers in big events, not to be like, not to really call people out here, but you know, a lot of the top European players since like, so there was the era where in the 80s and 90s, where a lot of the European top European players were winning majors, like the Nick Faldos, the Sevi Ballesteros, and Bernal Langer. But then after that era, it became a lot of European players that were really good, but tended to kind of um, fade away in major championships. I think most notably being Colin Montgomery and Lee Westwood. And then obviously there was Sergio Garcia, who really struggled in majors for a long time until he finally had his breakthrough at the Masters. But he, Sergio Garcia is like the most successful Ryder Cup player of all time. And, you know, this week, before the week, I was really high on Tommy Fleetwood because I was like, Tommy Fleetwood is straight out of the European mold where it comes to the Open Championship and he just like disappoints all the fans that are rooting for him at home and doesn't get it done as he has not gotten it done a lot, honestly, in like regular PGA Tour events, regular European Tour events. Um, but I was like, oh my gosh, the Ryder Cup, this is like where Tommy Fleetwood is going to shine. And he was, and he was really, really good. He wasn't the all-star that I kind of thought he was going to be, but he was like obviously really solid, got the winning half, uh, for the point, thanks to Ricky Fowler giving him that putt. And, uh, yeah, so I just think there is this, so to be kind of like a smart ass American about it, it's like, oh, well, the Europeans can't get it done in the majors but they get it done in the Ryder Cup but honestly as a U.S. fan it's like super frustrating and like I like a lot of those guys as golfers and I want Tommy Fleetwood to win majors I uh, I was rooting for him pretty hard at the Open Championship and but I root pretty hard for the U.S. to win the Ryder Cup and so it is a little frustrating when you see you're like how where is this coming from sometimes um but yeah the Europeans I think I think they just they've always grown up with it as as a goal and, you know, I think it's really shown, I think, um, a lot of the players have taken, a lot of the veteran European players right now are taking a lot of care in the event, which is like very, very smart of them. And so they are like shepherding in this young generation. Obviously, Luke Donald went with, you know, Aberg as one of his captain picks. And so it's like coming in with the new generation because to be honest, like one of the big differences right now is that the European Tour, it, or the DP World Tour, is at the kind of an inflection point, and we really don't know what the future of that is. And I think that, you know, for a long time has been so, is obviously intricately um, a part of the Ryder Cup. They it is a huge money maker for them. I think a lot of people say that it's basically funds the entire tour, um, but a lot of the top European players have played less and less on that tour, and so I think it could have led to a situation where the Ryder Cup was losing relevance in Europe. But I think the European players have quite smartly kept it at the forefront um, for the next generation and are keeping kind of the tradition of the European team that goes way back to those guys in the, the 70s and 80s. Um, and it's just been really smart. And yeah, I just think it just shows that the European players uh, have the Ryder Cup as a goal that American players just like pay a lot of lip service to and I do think they really want to win I seriously do like there's nothing that tells me that they don't care about this event but I really don't think I think there's just like a different level of caring from the European squad and I think one of the other big differences 
with the European team, and this has really shown itself for as long as I remember watching the Ryder Cup, it's just the team chemistry. They just always seem to be like such a well-connected group. And I always am kind of marvel at it. Um, I'm always usually looking at it with frustration as, you know, rooting for the U.S. team and seeing the U.S. team like sometimes looking very mopey and very disjointed in losses. Um, and obviously the U.S. has had its, um, you know, bats of infighting and, and things that just like seem to rip the team apart in a lot of the losing, uh, a lot of the losing teams, um, over the last like 15 years. But you have to marvel at the European squad, uh, just getting connected and not doing it with a lot of time. I think that's one of the big, you know, one of the big lessons for the U.S. team is that this Europe, the European team, every couple of years, they're able to do this and they're able to kind of form a really close bond really quickly. And I think, you know, it does go back to the first point about how much they care about the Ryder Cup. But, and so I think they really collectively band together and I think it's maybe a lot easier for them because they're not coming up. I don't think they're coming with um, the slight barriers that some of the U.S. players may be coming with, like a slight skepticism about the event, maybe um, an annoyance about not getting paid, as has become a huge talking point uh, this week. Um, but the European team, excuse me, they just always seem to bond really well. And I think, you know, I was really heartened to hear that the U.S., you know, nine of the U.S. guys on the team took a trip to Marque Simone and played the golf course. And I think that was a huge step up from what we saw in Paris, where they clearly were just unprepared for the golf course. A lot of the players, I don't think, had seen it before they had shown up for that week. And it was just a just a mess. I mean, they just didn't know how to play the golf course. It was set up super funky, uh, super deep rough, narrow fairways. It was, it's, a, it's a funky golf course to begin with. Um, but I think this is like key for any winning squad is you have to build team chemistry. And I really think what it sounds like Luke Donald did. And I think, you know, the, the Europeans are kind of keep this stuff close to the vest. I don't think they want to give away a lot of their secrets to the U S team. And they kind of play it off like, Oh, well it just organically happens. The U S is always like thinking about stuff and creating task force. And the European squad always seems to be making fun of this, but I think, behind the scenes they are putting in all they're putting in the effort and they're just like playing it off like they're not but it from from all accounts like luke donald basically you know that week had a sports psychologist come and kind of walk them through i was listening to the knowing up pod and dj was talking about sports psychologists like um, bringing them up to the stands and and asking them those questions about how they're going to react when they see you know all the fans there and just like going through, like just really helping people embrace the moment, get ready for the event, get in that mental headspace. And the other thing I heard, which I, you know, if I was on the, the U.S. task force, which I obviously am not and will not be, I mean, the U.S. team needs to kind of like have this more like retreat um, mentality that Europe has. And so like the European team, from what it sounded, and I forget where I heard this, was like, you know, the team meetings with the emotional um, speakers talking about the event, talking about how important it is. And then, you know, players receiving, you know, individual 
uh, letters and notes from like close ones and family members or mentors talking about how far they've come and, you know, really getting people. I think these things just really build a strong bond. And, you know, it really, it really can get somebody, it, it's a really emotional thing for, you know, to get people like inspiring speakers in front of you. Um, people play in the event and, and share their experience and then to have love, individual loved ones, like just, and it doesn't even have to be the, about the writer cup, but like just saying how proud they are of you. I think it just like means a lot. I mean, maybe I'm a sap, but like I'm somebody who comes from, I went to like a Jesuit university where retreats are a big part of the, like the kind of the educational philosophy, I'd say. And I don't even know this for sure, but at least it was at Loyola, uh, Loyola, Maryland, where I went to college. And, you know, we used to go to these retreats out in Western Maryland, a couple hours drive. You know, you're there with a group uh, for a weekend and it's, you're not there for a very long time, but you're there together, like bunking together. You're like away, you're mostly away from your friends and you're spending basically like 24 hours with each other. And you're just like building a deep, a close connection with these people. And people are sharing like really intimate experiences. You're, you know, sharing with each other and, you know, it can, I think it's a really rewarding thing. I, I mean, I think it would be a hard sell to get the U.S. team invested in something like that. But I, I seriously think it's the sacrifice that these guys have to make and that the captain and the PGA of America has to kind of bring out of the American team um, if they really want to build a team. And I know this week it's been like so much talk about Zach Johnson, you know, talking about, and everybody's been like, oh, this is the closest team I've ever seen. And we've heard that like 50,000 times. Um, and that may be true. And I'm, it does seem like the U.S. team is close, or at least they're not like actively at odds with each other, which has been like the other times, the other European Ryder Cups have been fraught with that or the times it's been in Europe. And so I guess that's a step up. But uh, I really think the U.S. team could learn from how Europe kind of builds team chemistry and you know i don't think european i don't think u.s athletes who become professional golfers are quite as like able or like it's not quite as easy to get them all on a team i think as the europeans like it's not what i'm trying to say you know like you know the type of guy who becomes a prefer, like a lot of people who grow up playing golf become professional golfers. Like they're often drawn to it because it's not a team sport. And I feel like the Americans kind of present that way a little bit more. I think there's guys on the European team kind of like Matt Fitzpatrick's that kind of fit that American mold where it's like, yeah, I like my process and I like to do like what I do. And that's like literally why I like golf. Um, so I think it's like a little bit of a tougher sell for the U.S. team. But they have to they have to build just a stronger team chemistry and they have to do it with the unit that they have each Ryder Cup. They can't just rely on the guys who have been good in years past, as we've seen with the kind of the buddy system, which has been an ongoing debate. They have to kind of do it that week of as the European team does every Ryder Cup because like this European team was very different than the last European team and they were obviously like very close very very close okay so let's talk a little bit about like the buddy ball situation justin thomas jordan speed um so i think 
you know, this has been another thing. I'm not the first to bring this up, but is this Ryder Cup the end, the death of Buddy Ball? I certainly think it's something that should be considered. Um, I think, you know, Luke Donald didn't have a lot of Buddy Ball options with his team because it wasn't a lot of players for Europe that, at least a lot of teammates for Europe that had been successful as pairings, like for Ryder Cups in the, like so many Ryder Cups in the past. I don't even remember if like Fleetwood and McElroy had, maybe they had been a pairing previously, but I, I can't, honestly can't really remember off the top of my head. Um, but obviously, you know, JT and Spieth and Burns and Scheffler, I think are the big examples of the buddy ball pairings. And they were pretty bad. I mean, Burns and Scheffler came out in foursomes and were just absolutely terrible. There was a lot of analytic and analytically minded people, you know, pointing out what an error that was to pair them up in that format and how it doesn't play off each other's strengths. Um, and it just, it turned out to be absolutely the case. Like Sam Burns actually played a lot better, uh, for the week than I, I thought he was after that first day. I was like, oh my God, he's going to be unplayable. But he was really successful with Morikawa, and I thought he played really well versus Rory McIlroy in their singles match. Um, and then, you know, the JT Speed thing, you know, I couldn't believe how bad they were, to be honest. I mean, I, I was pretty shocked at how bad Speed was in particular. I was pretty mixed on JT just because his form had been so bad coming in. And, you know, I do... I do have a lot of respect for JT because the U.S. does kind of need some fire. And JT definitely, you know, he he almost is the closest one who's been consistently on the team the last 10 years that does have that kind of like European kind of fire to him uh, in almost like that guy, Ian Poulter vein. I mean, he's a better golfer than Ian Poulter. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, you could see that JT just like still wasn't there. Like he was still just like, hitting these bad iron shots that he's been hitting all year still just wasn't hitting the ball, you know, up to the standard that he really needed to be. And the strokes gain data really bear that out. And him, you know, JT and Spieth were two of the worst performers for the week. And, you know, it, it does make me wonder whether JT could have been an assistant captain or whether he could have just been, you know, in, in the hindsight is 2020, obviously, but if if I was Zach Johnson and if I had to do it over again, I would have sent out JT in the first matches, the foursome Friday morning foursomes, to send a message because he was on the team. But if he struggled then and he played like he kind of did on in you know the team matches on Friday and Saturday, like I think he he couldn't have played him. I think he had to sit him like for the till singles, like or maybe that should have just been the way you thought about it coming in. Like maybe he, he just, he, he was going to be the fire for the team, but you couldn't play him because he's just like not playing that well. Um, and I feel like you could have maybe even seen that on the range and like really been like, okay, yeah, like it's not, it's still not all the way there. Or like watched him on the practice round or whatever. I mean, I know how he played, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think what's a little difficult for, for Zach Johnson is that Xander, you know, Xander Shoffley and Cantley struggled as a pairing, even though Cantley played really well overall um i guess a lot of the blame there goes to xander but they had been so successful and you know 
for that team not to really shape out is is definitely like a big you know really hurt the team but i think one of the problems with the buddy ball i i think ultimately the problem with buddy ball is that the u.s team had a lot of rookies like wyndham clark brian Harmon, and even people like max homa this was his first Ryder cup in europe and like when they sent out Harmon and homa in the the morning foursomes on friday I was like, this is a kind of a bad, like a weird spot for them. Like, that's a lot to ask. And they ended up being a really successful pairing, mostly because of Max. And Max played really, really well. It was definitely the MVP for the Americans. Um, but I just thought that was like a really tough spot. And it was contrasted with like the European team who put a lot of the young guys with veterans, like putting Aberg with Hovland. And, you know, Rom, I forget, I forget who Rom was, was paired with, but it just like, they just set up those guys for success. I mean, Bobby Mack and Justin Rose, like playing with a veteran like that. And it, you know, it really, I think it's a really good philosophy. It may not work a hundred percent of the time, but I think it's one of the ways that Luke Donald really just like, just was running laps around, uh, ZJ as a captain. Okay, speaking of Luke Donald running laps around Zach Johnson, I, you know, I'm not really sure where this all has shaken out, but it certainly seems like Luke Donald trusted the analytics a lot more than Zach Johnson. Zach Johnson has not really talked a whole lot about the data approach, and to be honest, like this, is, I think, is one of the most alarming things about the Zach Johnson presidency, presidency, captaincy is that I kind of thought that this U.S. captain situation was kind of a cabal of people. I thought it was like, you know, I thought the task force kind of ran the show. So guys like Stuart Sink and Jim Furyk and most of all Davis Love, uh, who seems to be kind of the head guy of the Ryder Cup task force, um, they kind of operated as a team and made a lot of decisions as a team. And it really felt like Davis Love in particular, and I shouldn't uh, leave out Steve Stricker, who's the captain at Whistling Streets, that they were definitely committed to analytics. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But that was the sense that I got. And maybe I'm overstepping because they won, and I just assume that they that means they won. The, they used analytics to make a lot of their decision-making. But I thought that kind of was the case with the U.S. team. And Zach Johnson has, I think there were some decisions like the Scheffler Burns and the JT Spieth. I mean, JT Spieth is kind of like a little tough because that's basically why he picked JT is to be with Spieth. But like the Scheffler Burns, he was kind of like bowing down to the players wanting to play with each other. And then it also sounded like the Scheffler Kepka pairing was like kind of a desperation move, I think. Um, I was listening to Andy Lack's podcast, and I think that was mentioned on there. And so that's like very alarming, and it makes me think that ZJ like did not trust the analytics. And if not, I'm not sure what he was trusting, because like American captain intuition has not served them well in Europe. So I'm not sure where he thought he would be like, yeah, I know how we'll do this. So very strange. And then I think that's contrasted with Luke Donald. Um, who, you know, I think, I think most, I think the, obviously the biggest example of this is just sending off foursomes first on Friday 
was a place he thought they had an advantage. That was obviously a data-driven um, idea and why he executed it like that. And clearly someone who just trusted um, what he thought the strengths of his team were. Um, I don't have the information in front of me. I know here in the U.S. on the television um, coverage, Paul Eisinger was like going hot to trot on these like, the Europeans are better from like 180 to 200 yards. Um, and he said a lot of weird stuff this week. I'm going to assume that that was correct. And it, yeah, it's just another way that like the Europeans are just like kind of playing chess where the U.S. seems to be playing checkers. And um, I think the other thing with the analytics, trusting analytics, as we mentioned with kind of the Scheffler burn situation as far as captain's picks, um kind of reminds me a little bit of the Paris Ryder Cup where Jim Furyk was on a task force that involved like Tiger and Phil and Phil Mickelson it the way it always seemed to me and I'm pretty I feel pretty confident in this is that Phil was like on the <laughs> on the task force helping decide like captain's picks and he ended up being one of the captain's picks and it was like a big like Dick Cheney in charge of deciding a vice president candidate and ending up with Dick Cheney as the option kind of energy. And Phil was like absolutely God awful, terrible at Paris. And it was like Jim Furyk just got kind of like bullied into it that by Phil, at least that's how it felt, or at least Phil had an equal footing at the table. And, you know, I really think the captains have to like just have a little bit more guts with this stuff. And just, like, not let the players decide. I really think Seth Johnson, like, bow to the players with the Sam Burns pick and the Justin Thomas pick. And, you know, he, I think, should have had a little bit more faith. I mean, I don't really have faith in his intuition to do the right thing, but I would hope, like, the U.S. task force and the whole machine behind him, the analytics and whatever else, would help him, like, show him why that may not be the best idea. And why guys like Keegan Bradley and Cam Young may be better course fits. Um, I think there's been a lot of discussion about that, but I think it's fair to say that at least Cam Young was, would, as one of the elite, elite drivers of the golf ball in the world, would have definitely been a great course fit for Marco Simone. Um, okay, I have successfully rambled on way longer than I was expecting, and basically. I don't even think I really was like that coherent about my points about why I thought the Europeans would be more, uh, should be kind of the team more likely to win on the road. Um, but I kind of threw a lot of different things out there, kind of mashed up with what I thought the European team did, does better, what I thought the US team should work on. Um, but anyway, I should really wrap this up. So uh, thank you so much for listening. If you've gotten all the way through, this is totally me kind of like spitting or like shooting from the hip, I guess I should say. And um, I am going to try to work on this, um, be clear, be more succinct. And uh, hopefully it's something I'll get better at. But I hope I hope there is at least some interesting things in there for you to take away. And I really appreciate you listening and I'll talk to everybody next week. Thanks. Bye.